Thank you, brother. Well, it is a both a privilege and an honor to be here this afternoon. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get here until uh, um, a little bit later, so we didn't get to hear Brother David Griffin's remarks, but we fortunately, we're here to hear Brother Alan Boniface. Um, I can just tell you right now, you can put away the concordances and get out the coloring books, uh, because I will not be nearly as academic as these fine scholars of the Bible are, and I truly mean that sincerely. Wow, um, it is really a reward for me and my wife to be here with you all and to learn from God's Word. This is, this is good. This is very important that we're doing this. Thanks to the 21st Street Congregation. Thank you to Brother Ron Corder and Brother Richard Bunner for this great privilege for me. And thanks to my wife. Yesterday was our 25th wedding anniversary, and part of the reason why we weren't able to make it here as quick as we were, because we had some plans, and I'm just grateful that she's here. And um, I'll throw that in, too, because I think maybe that factors in a little bit to the topic that we have at hand today. Brother Richard Bunner told me when he gave me the, the topic, he said, keep it foundational, I believe, and encouraging. And so I'll let you all be the judge. I just ask, be gentle uh, with the Q&A. And I appreciate that very, very, very much. Sometimes there are people of whom we look up to and these individuals are examples to us, and we may attempt to emulate them. And oftentimes I'm sure that's good, but sometimes that may not be so good. But this afternoon, with this topic, Pillars of a Godly Home, we are in, I want to introduce you to a family that was actually mentioned today, and this, this afternoon, and I want to talk to you about a family who's only spoken of once in all the entire Bible, in fact, a full chapter, and you might say a half, is devoted to them. And we're talking, of course, of the family of Cornelius. And I'll turn there to Acts, the 10th chapter, beginning with verse 1. I'll be reading from the New King James. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. This scripture here at Acts 10 shows us that this man was not just an ordinary Gentile Roman man. Of course, he was a military man. He was a centurion. He had stature. He had uh, a vocation that was noted. But the Bible says that he was one who was devout. He was one who feared God. He was one who gave generously to the people. And he was one who prayed to God always. First glance, and considering the, the topic, you might say, well, I thought that this particular study was about families, about a godly home, and that's a fair question. But notice that the scripture describes not only Cornelius in this way, but says he and all his household or family was this way. And I do believe that Cornelius and his family serves as a model Christian family for us today. Their lives provide for us the pillars 
of a godly home. And yet, here's what's interesting. Cornelius and his families at the beginning of this account were not Christians. But by the end of the chapter, they would be. In fact, this account of Cornelius and his family ends in Acts 10 by saying in the very last verse, and he, the apostle Peter, commanded them, Cornelius and his family, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And their conversion, their spiritual birth, what was mentioned by our brother just a moment ago, this opportunity to both Jew and Gentile, bond and free, etc., was the fulfillment of a promise that goes all the way back by God. And their conversion laid the foundation of non-Jewish or Gentile people as well as those of the seed of Abraham. Now, Cornelius really had a story, and we read about it here in Acts 10. And here are the, basically the events that surround his story. One day, while Cornelius was praying to God about the ninth hour or three o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. And Cornelius was praised in this vision by an angel of God for his faithful devotion, for his faithful prayers, for his charitable giving to others, and for his godly reverence. The angel instructed him to send men to Joppa, about a day's journey. It would take them about a day's journey from when they left his house to go and see a man at Caesarea, or from Caesarea, to where Simon Peter was, to learn God's will for him and his family. This, of course, keeping in the contextual knowledge and understanding that we have in the Bible, for example, in Romans 10, about how we, how we are to receive the gospel. The next day, something similar happened to Peter, as it happened to, happened to Cornelius, just before Cornelius' men arrived at Peter's home. Peter learned in his vision or his dream not to call something unclean or common if God had cleansed it. And so while Peter was pondering this, on the door, almost at that moment, as he's pondering this, the meaning of this vision, Cornelius' men arrive. And so they take, Peter, or they take Peter back to Cornelius' house and where he and his family are. Even some of their other friends and other relatives were there anxiously awaiting. Both men shared their mutual experiences with one another and all who were with them. After this, Peter began to teach them about Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that they had a special unction, you might say, of God's Holy Spirit occurring to the, uh, upon them all those who believed as those that had happened on the day of Pentecost. Upon seeing this, the Apostle Peter asked, can anyone see reason to not baptize these individuals? Hearing no objections, Cornelius, this Gentile, and his family were baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. And so we want to pose three questions from this and in our study. What can we learn from Cornelius and his family? What pillars of a godly home can we build upon as he did? And what principles or spiritual principles and practices can we apply to our own families today? Well, the first one, as we so noted, is the devotion that this man had to God. And not just he, but his entire family. They were devoted. The word devout in the original Greek as used here comes from the Greek word eusebus, which signifies signifying sacred awe. It describes reverence exhibited especially, and this is interesting to me, it describes reverence exhibited especially in action. This tells us 
that Cornelius and his family had a faith that was not just confined to words, it was demonstrated in obedience, in action. Cornelius was not like those described by Paul, for example, when he wrote to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, they professed to know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Cornelius understood the teaching, even if it hadn't been written yet, that James would write in James 2, verse 20, when he said that faith without works or action or obedience is a dead faith. And Cornelius, this Gentile, this Gentile man, this Roman, this military man, this non-Jew, he seemed to understand this. He seemed to understand the basis of this because he was devout. He was devoted. This was one of the descriptions of Cornelius's description of him as a man, but it was the description of him in his home with his family. And it was, a, I believe, a foundational pillar of his home. His home, his family were devout. They were actively showing reverence to God in speech, in actions, behavior, and in their thinking. We see a family who naturally, what would they have done? They would have worshipped a plurality of pagan gods as other Roman citizens would have. But they didn't. They didn't go along with everybody else down the Gentile street. They sincerely worshipped the only true. Think about that. Think about the, the, the difficulty that that must have been for this family. Think about it for the, this man and for his children going against the grain in their society. But they did that. They were, they were so sincere regarding their, their, their conviction and their devotion in their home. And so much so that later in the chapter, in Acts the 10th chapter, verse 22, the Bible says that Cornelius and his family had a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. This wasn't hidden under a, a bushel basket. This wasn't, you know, hide your light. This wasn't, we're afraid to demonstrate our faith. This was people that, a family that was known. They were known by the Jews among them and lived around them that they were devout unto God. You know, there's a phrase that I really appreciate that I come, come across some time back, and I believe it speaks to this idea. It says, live in such a way that those who know you but don't know God will come to know God because they know you. My question for all of us today is that does that represent your home and does it represent my home? Is your family known in the community as devout followers of Jesus Christ as Cornelius and his family was, as we just read? When your neighbors and your relatives or even members of your congregation, when they think of you, did they think of devout Christians? Would you be essentially the family that they put in the dictionary next to devout Christians? And if not, why not? I don't think we really realize the influence, the positive influence that we can have on others around us. We often don't realize the sphere of influence 
that we have. You know, when we use the phrase sphere of influence, sometimes it pertains to nations having influence over other nations. You know, there's not really any formal authority, but their presence of thinking, their indoctrination sometimes, words, behavior, etc., has an influence. This can be both good and bad. Influence can be based on selfish and self-serving motives, and it can lead others down a destructive path. For example, in 1942, during the height of its existence, the Empire of Japan had quite a large sphere of influence in Southeast Asia. The Empire greatly influenced events in Korea, even before the end of uh, the World War II. Events in Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, and parts of China. As a result, even after the destruction of the Japanese Empire, after the second atomic bomb and their unilateral signing, their, I mean their, uh, their unconditional signing uh, uh, of peace, after their destruction, the U.S. and its allies, according to historians, continue to find conflict with the other nations who had been influenced by this empire of Japan. They would fight with the North Koreans uh, in the Korean War in the early 1950s, and then subsequently the North Vietnamese in the mid-1950s to 1970s. Spheres of influence are a real thing, and they're powerful. But they don't have to be bad and wicked and wrong, but they can be powerful for good and for righteousness and for holiness. The sphere of influence, I believe, that Cornelius and his family had then and even now was for good and powerful. The scripture tells us in verse 24 that while they were waiting on the apostle Peter and his companions to arrive, now listen to this, Cornelius called together his relatives and close friends. Now had he not had a sphere of influence established already, they might have just said, I don't have time for that. What are you talking about? I don't take you very seriously about your newfound religion because I haven't seen anything demonstrated in your life that would point towards something like that. But that wasn't the case. I, they came. Devotion to God was not just, you see, limited to the man. He influenced first his immediate family and then those closest around him, his relatives, his friends. So you see, people are watching you too. They're watching all of us. And they don't just see one example. They're not just looking for some random act of kindness that's done during a religious holiday, maybe about this time of the year, or when the rest of the community gets religious for a few days. And they say, wow, devoted Christians. They may say it on social media. That doesn't mean they believe it. People watch our lives, the summation of our lives, and they see us. Sometimes they, they point to us and unfairly criticize based on somebody else in our ancestry. But they still look at us because we have a great influence in that respect, just like Cornelius and his family. And just like them, they're looking to see whether or not we're devout to God. They watch our family. They watch our kids we're on the, when they're on the school bus or on the playground, at school, at sporting events or wherever they go. And they put two and two together. It doesn't take people long to see whether or not there's true devotion to God. They're looking for consistency. 
in our devotion. Paul reminded the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Brethren, join in following my example. Now listen, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. May it never be said of us today that we are a pattern but not for good. That our children and our grandchildren are not a good pattern for those to see that are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cornelius was a man practicing a foreign religion and yet he loved God, the only true God of heaven and earth, unafraid and unashamed to be known for his devotion, to be a devoted follower. Sometimes the truth is some people are actually afraid, maybe even ashamed to be a Christian. But if we want to be true devoted followers of Jesus, as this man and his family was, if we want our family as well to be that way, then we must teach them never to be ashamed, never to be afraid. Not as I believe, as was mentioned by the brother, that maybe even a little bit later that we would be as the Jewish nation, that we're boastful and proud, or become Gentiles that would boast against those that had been taken out of the way. We were grafted in if we're Gentiles. That we don't have anything of ourselves to boast of. But we can never be ashamed or be afraid of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then be counted as devoted Christians, can we? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now I want you to notice the connection of these two passages. One has to do with not being ashamed, and one has to do with not being afraid. But there's a key word to both, a connection. For Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Listen, I think the connection here is power. Because when we're not ashamed and not afraid, ooh, there's a real spiritual power with that. That is something that cannot be shaken. It is a foundation. And that's what we want in our homes, do we not? We want a power that's there that when the hard times come and when tragedies arrive and we don't know what's going on in the minds of certain people that are influencing our children and our grandchildren, that that foundation is firm because the power of not being ashamed and not being afraid during those difficult times are in place. For we love the Lord and we love His gospel and we're fully convinced to a thousand generations. That's what we want. This was one reason Cornelius' family was a godly family. They were, devoted, they, devout, they were devoted in their faith to God and they were an influence and a pattern of faithful devotion for others to follow. But we've learned from this another pillar and that was of this family and that was their commitment to prayer. And this is huge. We, we don't think about this near enough, I do not believe. Cornelius was not, as we said, a born Jew. He would not have had the same privileges under the old covenant to worship in the temple with other Jews. The Jews in his day were adamantly opposed to any non-Jew co-worshipping. The Apostle Peter, in fact, later when recounting to the apostles and to other Jewish Christians when he returned, had to defend himself to them when he had interacted with Cornelius and his family. The Bible says in Acts chapter 3, verse uh, 11, verse 3, 
that when they heard that Peter and his companions had been with this Gentile and his family, they said, you went into an uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Later in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was accused in Acts chapter 21 for bringing in Trophimus the Ephesian, a Gentile Christian into the temple, which of whom he did not, in fact. But they said of this man, this Christian man, he's defiled this holy place. So we see Cornelius and his family would not have been welcomed in the synagogue. Even though, even though, with such limitations to serve and worship God, Cornelius and his family stayed committed to God in the best way that they could. Their limitation not stifling their commitment to prayer. You know, I heard a story one time about a town that had suffered this terrible tragedy. And so the mayor called together the council of the aldermen. And after about an hour and a half of wrangling and arguing and discussing what to do next, the mayor quietened everybody down on the council and said, I think we should pray. To which one of the aldermen said, has it really come to that? That's how some people treat prayer. It's a last resort. It's a Hail Mary. It's a throwing a penny in a wishing well. Rather than treating prayer as a last resort, it should always be in a godly home, the first response for every decision, for every choice. There's nothing too small. You know, I read, I read an ad one time about a, an excavator, and he said, no job too small or large. No prayer is too small or large for God. Ask Him to help your family for everything so that we make certain that we do His will. That's our goal. Notice that the Scripture says in Acts 10 verse 30 that Cornelius was praying at the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon. He said, four days ago, I was fasting unto this, not to this hour, he told Peter and his companions. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Well, first, it's noteworthy that he was fasting. And he had been up until three o'clock in the afternoon. Second, Cornelius was following in the example of Daniel of old, who prayed, the Bible says, three times a day. And the Bible says, was his custom. And this apparently is the custom of this man Cornelius. And he, by doing this, he was setting an example for his family. He was intentional. He was intentional about his prayer life. He was consistent about his prayer life. It defined him as a man of God. For any truly committed disciple of Jesus, praying should come as natural as breathing. Yet if truth be told, very few of us could favorably be compared to Cornelius. Some brethren do not pray beyond worship services. Most brethren make an effort to offer thanks or ask the blessing at mealtimes or in times of difficult and trouble. Some brethren might even start each day with prayer, possibly say a prayer with their family before they go to bed at night. But the Bible says that Cornelius and his family were people who prayed to God always. For Cornelius and his family, this was part of their identity. People knew them, that they were people of prayer. They lived as Paul instructed, I think, the Christians at Thessalonica when he said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. 
Isn't it wonderful when our children and grandchildren are so accustomed to family prayer and Bible study and family worship at home that they don't think it odd when somebody comes over our house and we participate in these things. Not for show, brethren, but because that's what we do. That's just what we do as a family. Sometimes when privately talking with others, I found out that, that some brethren express that they, they don't really feel that they have a close relationship with God as they should. And they admit that even their family may not be as close to God as, as they should be. And when we examine closer, almost without exception, these same brethren confess that they are rather sluggish in their prayer life. They're not consistent with it, and so forth. How can we expect God to be near to us when we're not as concerned as we should by being close to Him in prayer? James said in James 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's a promise. Is that not for us in prayer as Christians? Outside of the study of God's Word, prayer has to be the most intimate way in which we can draw near to God. And I don't know of a better, swifter way to, to, to tap into His love and His power and His joy when there's difficult times. When, when I've been in situations of real stressful moment, especially when I was young, and there was an older brother in Christ, perhaps my dad, or another brother in Christ whom I really respected, and they offered a prayer in that, off, that awful situation. I immediately felt calm. And I was so grateful and thankful. Those words were heartfelt and in love. And I believed, as was taught, and I thank my parents, that that prayer was real. And that God, if it be according to His will, would hear it and grant it. And that gives us great comfort because that's what the Bible tells us. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. Of course, prayer is not just for the one praying only, but for others for whom we're praying for. One of the best ways to be blessing to others is to pray for them. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And then he brought it down more specifically. He said in Ephesians 6, 18, Pray at all times, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. But when it comes to being a blessing to others, we don't just stop with prayer, just as this man, Cornelius, and his family. There's another pillar of a godly home that blesses our family as well and others. And that is by living a generous life. And I believe that's what the Bible talks about here with regard to Cornelius. They lived life generously. Makes me think of a little poem that I read one time that illustrates this point. It's called, Live the Way You Pray. I knelt to pray when day was done and prayed, O Lord, bless everyone. Lift from each saddened heart the pain and let the sick be well again. And then I woke another day and carelessly went on my way. The whole day long I did not try to wipe a tear from any eye. I did not try to share the load of any brother on the road. I did not even go to see the sick man just next door to me. Yet once again, when day was done, I prayed, O oh Lord, bless everyone. 
But as I prayed into my ear, the word of God rang oh so clear. Pause, hypocrite, before you pray. Whom have you tried to bless today? God's sweetest blessings always go by hands that serve him here below. And then I hid my face and cried, forgive me, God, for I have lied. Let me but live another day, and I will live the way I pray. We find that Cornelius was one who lived the way he prayed. I believe he did. For the scripture says that he gave much alms to the people. Now the word alms means an act of mercy and compassion. And it can and often does mean tending to the needs of the poor. But it's not just confined to that. It is any act by which you demonstrate your love by a deed of kindness. And if there was ever an age where we need more deeds of kindness, we're living in it today. So many people are so preoccupied with themselves and their own well-being that they forget about their fellow man. So many people have adopted the attitude or philosophy that when my needs get met, then I'll be concerned for the needs of others. When I become happy and content, then I'll think about ways to bring happiness and good cheer to others. People who have this kind of attitude are on the wrong path. Paul reminds us, or he reminded the brethren at Ephesus when he stopped by there or along the way in his journey, and he was telling us what Jesus reminds us today. In Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus is telling us that true happiness comes not when you concentrate on what you might acquire for just yourself, but when you meet the needs and well-being of other people. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, not that we don't look out for our own interest, but not just our interests, but also for the interests of others. As Christians, and as this family demonstrated to us, we are and should be givers. Not just because we seek the satisfaction promised by Jesus, but we want to imitate our Master, who the Bible says went about doing good. We are also givers because we want to bring glory to our Father. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, there are practical ways of uh, practicing generosity in our home. One such way is practicing hospitality in our home. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now, in the New International Version, it renders it that passage this way. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The Hebrew writer encouraged hospitality in Hebrews 13, verse 2, interestingly enough. He said, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Even widows in the first century church were to demonstrate hospitality. If she has brought up children, Paul wrote, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. And for a man who desired to be an elder in the church, Paul would tell Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, 
but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, with self-control. And we see examples in the Bible as well. Rahab the harlot who hid the men of God in her house. The poor Shunammite woman who built an extra room in her home for the prophet of Elisha as he passed through. You see, when we practice not hospitality in our homes, we miss a valuable opportunity. We miss a valuable opportunity. Hospitality is what this man practiced. Let me catch up with my slides. So this brings us to our final pillar, if you want to say, of this godly family. And that is, he was one who feared God with all his household. In other words, Cornelius was the spiritual leader of his home. Otherwise, everybody in his household wouldn't have been fearful of God and had reverence of God like he was. He led them as a good, God-fearing spiritual leader should do. And this, he was a good example. He's a good example to us today as husbands and fathers. After the sin of Adam and Eve, God placed the responsibility of the family's spiritual well-being on the shoulders of the man of the house. God made clear to Abraham in the patriarchal age for example, he said in Genesis 18, verse 19, that as the man of the family, he was to, quote, command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. During the Mosaic age, God, speaking to the psalmist in Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. Isn't that wonderful? That they might arise and tell them to their children and that they put, should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, what He has done, but keep His commandments. This man, Cornelius, was a Gentile. Let me remind you of that. And he was getting this, unfortunately, much quicker than many of his Jewish counterparts. In this Christian age, it is no different. Paul instructs in Ephesians 5.29 that the man is to provide spiritual guidance and support to his wife, nourishing and cherishing her just as Christ also does the church. And as for the children, Paul would say in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's interesting to me that in this passage, Paul first warns us fathers to make sure that the manner, the manner, fathers, in which we provide spiritual leadership, this hits home to me, the manner in which we provide spiritual leadership does not cause our children to become angry and resentful to God. We must not demand more than what can and should be expected at a particular age or level of maturity. But be careful, dads, to love and to nourish our children so that they have a personal love and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
Does that mean we ought not to have household rules and standards based on the scriptures and enforce them? No, of course not. In fact, structure is important to children, structure is. Rules and standards help children develop discipline and self-control. Furthermore, if children don't learn to respect parental rules and understand the importance of submission and obedience while they're still at home, how can we, any of us, can expect them to respect God and submit to the will of God in, his, in their adult lives? But we must not, I believe, and I think we see this in the example of this man and his family, narrowly focus on strict obedience at the neglect of showing them love. The why to the what. Paul said to Timothy in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I realize that the primary reference of this passage is to congregational instruction. And yet it's just as true for us dads with regard to our instruction to our children, though. Principle applies, I believe. Show me a child whose heart and mind are nurtured and led with God's love and His Word, and I'll show you a child who wants to be an adult to serve God and to teach his or her children. Instructing our children um, requires a lot of, ex of exhorting and encouraging and imploring. The best way to instruct them is to read and study with them from God's Word. We must as parents and perhaps grandparents that are involved in this process or even aunts and uncles, we must stop making excuses in this area of concern with regard to the Word of God. As the brother mentioned about being students of the Word of God, the need for Bible knowledge and discernment is vital. James reminds us in James chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with the meekness of the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We cannot receive the seed of the word of God if we continue to hold on to some of this filth in our homes. We've got to lay it aside. If it's on our phones or on our television sets or on some other device, or some place that we're going, even if it's, quote, recreational or for sports related or music or whatever it may be, it's not helping many times in allowing the Word of God to take root. Kids can tell a difference what's really important in a family by the time that is spent. They're pretty smart. They really know what's going on. And so we need to think about this. These things that we need to lay aside might not even be sinful or wicked, but they are distracting us from spiritually leading our families. These recreational things, electronic devices, social media, sports, as I said, or music. Parents, we should feel a weight of responsibility to our children. And always, but most importantly, to them spiritually. Paul felt this, I believe, in 2 Corinthians 12 when he said in verses 14 and 15, the children not, to, not, not ought to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And he says, listen to this, I love it. I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 
That's what I want in our home. And so upon their final days in the desert, the children of Israel, after 40 years of wandering, were approaching their coveted destination, the promised land. Those who are now adults, the leaders, were only children when they left in Egypt. But before they went into the land to conquer it and live there, this land that had been promised many, many years before, many generations before, finally, they're going to enter in. And they are now being re-instructed regarding God's will. And it came down essentially to this one command, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But what does God say next? He says, The words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. So God is saying, Parents, don't forget what the goal is. I know we've got things in life that we've got to do, but they're not the goal of life. Heaven is. And those children's souls are depending on us. You know, sometimes I'm called by families even before a loved one is to pass away, as many preachers here today and others that don't necessarily preach but have preached funerals. But sometimes you're called in before that individual actually does pass. And I've found that sometimes, days, maybe a week or two before they pass from this life, and these are even brethren, of course, they're talking about and concerned about things like what they're going to leave behind to their family, to their children, to their grandchildren. Things like land and possessions and money or inheritance and businesses and so forth. But I have found, without exception, that as the days draw nearer and nearer still, if they maintain mental clarity, I have found that none of those things that they were talking about, leaving behind, matter. Only people. You know, we truly are strange creatures, we humans. We truly know deep down what or who is the most important in life. And yet sometimes by our actions and efforts and by all of our passions, we set other priorities and the two are not harmonious. But if we are blessed with a clear mind, in those few moments before we draw our last breath, clarity of life comes clear. No one ever says in those closing hours, bring me my trophies, bring me my awards, bring me my newspaper clippings about all my accomplishments, bring me my warranty deeds and my land titles. No. Each one knows and desires the same thing in the final moments. They want their family. Those that we've laughed with and cried with and lived with. But we don't want to wait too late to figure that out. Serve God with all your heart and soul and serve Him with your family, with devotion. Always pray. Be a family of prayer. Make that your identity. 
Live and give generously. Look for opportunities to bring people into your home. And make that an opportunity to share with them the bread of the day and the bread of life. And lead your family, fathers and dads, spiritually. Their souls are depending upon it. And then, may we be together. There's your family. Put your name there. There's your family. You're devout, God-fearing, generous, prayerful, and you're together with God someday with your family forever. And nothing else would matter. And let us be encouraged with, by that today, by this wonderful account. Let us give thanks to God who saw fit to record this in the annals of His Holy Word and be grateful for this example, never doubting that His ever-present help is available to us if only we seek Him with all our hearts.